Yo-ho, I'm Damien Roos, and today, how much can a new rider gain in 12 months, off-season riding, and what to do when you're chased by a dog. You got a question about cycling? I got you covered. But if I can't find the answer, it doesn't exist. This is your Cycling Questions Answered. If you're new to the show, here's the format. You ask, I answer. It's that simple. So let's get on with the show. Question one, how much can a newbie gain in 12 months? Hey guys, I've been training for a couple of months or so now in order to give me motivation to quit smoking and of course, the enjoyment of cycling. Looks like I can put out 200 watts for an hour. Is it realistic to aim for 300 watts in a year's time? I want a goal to strive for, but I don't want to feel bad for not achieving something exceedingly difficult. Well, this is a very common question. I get it all the time from my athletes. The actual question you're asking is, can I add 50% to my FTP functional threshold power in one year? The functional threshold power is the power output that you can sustain for approximately one hour. The answer is yes. From my experience as a coach, it's possible. I use a minimum to maximum ratio to see the changes of my athletes over a year and have seen increases of 24%, 28%, 38%, 53%, and up to 63% just in this year alone. Or if we look at progression of an athlete over four years, we can see 59% to 17% to 9% to 16%. So that shows that it's definitely possible. But here's my caveat. I can't really tell you. No one can. There are so many variables. Training, time, athletic history, injury, blah, blah, blah. It's just super hard to give you a definitive answer whether it is possible for you. I can give you some guidance from my experience as a coach. We can use a simple heuristic to work out not only what energy system you should be training, but what gains you can expect at your current level. I call this heuristic the 15% rule. On average, the gap between your 5-minute power and your FTP will be around 15% when they're fully developed. So if there's a difference there, then you know what to work on next. And also when you compare your FTP and add 15% to it, you know whether it's possible. And if you take your VO2 max or your 5-minute power and you minus 15%, you'll see whether there's room for you to move up to that 15% mark. Do an all-out 5-minute test and see if the 200 watts is 85% of that number. If it's lower, you have more room to grow. If not, it might be time to work on your VO2 max so you can give yourself more room to grow and actually have that potential to increase your FTP. Question two, I would like a disc that won't cost a fortune. So of course, he's talking about a rear wheel disc. But first, let's talk about what's a fortune. You mean the 5,000 US dollars for the Autobahn Schwartz disc wheel from Lightweight? That's pretty much a fortune to me and probably a lot of people. Funny thing is, I see so many of these rolling around Bangkok. They're making a killing when it comes to selling these things here. But let's work backwards from here. I'm talking about brand names here. I will get down to Chinese factory imports as one option, the final option actually. But when we talk about wheels, I'm only going to bring up brand names. And the first one is the Zip 900 at 1600 USD. When we move down from that, we get to the Head Jet Plus at 1200 bucks USD. 
And finally, as far as a brand new named carbon disc wheel is concerned, fast forward disc is the cheapest that you're going to get at around a thousand bucks USD. So the other options though are secondhand and a secondhand brand name disc is going to cost you around 750 bucks USD. But then you drop down and if you want a brand new disc for 600 bucks USD, you are talking about a Chinese factory import. Personally, I'm not sold on the factory direct model from China just yet. Carbon is not all the same from the layering to the material cost. And it's a small insurance to add a brand name to any purchase that you make when it comes to carbon. I'm sure over time that when the marketing and the sales teams of these Chinese factories get together and figure out the best ways to show that they're legit and get rid of that mystery, then we will see people and myself potentially purchasing these items as a legit option. We may also see the price increase. So I don't know if that's totally a good thing. But for now, the risk with these two options, the secondhand option and the Chinese factory direct option, is that you either go with buying a secondhand one and the risks that the carbon has been damaged and there's some damage that you can't actually see, or you go for the direct from the factory one and deal with the issues of a potentially subpar carbon layup. You really just have to weigh up the difference if you're going to go down this low. Otherwise, your cheapest option is around a thousand bucks USD. Question three, what's the best course of action if you get bitten by a dog while riding? I've had some close calls with unleashed dogs chasing me while riding before. And today I seriously thought I was about to be bitten as I unwittingly passed a large-ish dog at a point of my ride, which required me to ride slowly. I've ridden this particular road before, but never have I encountered any dogs until today. It was a rural area for what it's worth. Luckily, I didn't get bitten. Afterwards, though, I've been thinking about what the best course of action would be in the event that you were bitten on the leg. For example, assuming you're bleeding and it's a non-trivial distance from home, what should you do? Are dogs always bluffing or is this something to seriously consider? So firstly, let's talk about avoiding getting bitten in the first place. Personally, I've had limited experience with this. I've never been bitten by a dog while out on the bike. I have been chased a couple of times in rural Thailand where dogs kind of come out of the fields or out of the forest and catch me by surprise. I've usually been able to out-sprint them. But he raises a really good point here when he's asking about what if it's a slow part of the course? What if there is no possibility, whether it's yourself or what you're riding on, that you just cannot get away. So this is the first thing I want to address. And when I look at all the advice out there, it's in overwhelming support of not sprinting. If this is your first instinct, and this is also going to be the dog's first instinct, and of course, this comes from your fight or flight behavior, which is purely based on your reptile brain or your lizard brain, whatever you want to call it, it's just a response to danger. As soon as you start to go and the dog starts to go, you've scared the dog and they will become your enemy for life. All of a sudden, you have set yourself up for failure every time you see this dog again because they're going to associate the feeling of fear and anger and chasing with you. So they're going to go after you every single time. So you've got to think about ways to outsmart these dogs. And here are three things about dogs that are going to help you outsmart them. 
Firstly, they chase wimps. It's like what a bully does going after the weakest target. So don't run off when you're being bullied by this dog. Take a bite instead, or at least just stand your ground. Number two, they sense fear. So if you're scared while approaching a dog, he is sure to suspect and bark and chase you. Number three, they love challenges. If they think you are a worthy adversary, they will confront you either to be protective or to see who is stronger in the area. So what do you do? You avoid altogether and don't give them any reason to confront you. If speed is a problem, slow down. If big size is the problem, get off your bike. If he suspects you, let him smell you. A friendly look and a lovely hello calms most dogs down. If you see a dog that is sure to bark at you, change your approach. Get off your bike, start walking it, do something different. You could also potentially, if you know that there's going to be dogs around, pack some treats. You can make friends with them at worst at worst you may have some pepper spray or maybe ammonia that you spray on them but again this would be for me the last resort definitely when i think about this i really am quite nervous i'm thinking that it's really crazy to not ride away from a dog while it's chasing you to stop seems like the silliest thing you can do but of course this is protecting you if you like i said you are in an area where you can't ride faster you are at the end of a long ride and you can't ride faster. There's got to be another way to approach this and this is going to be your best bet from everything I've read and I covered a lot of ground when I was researching the answer to this question. The part about what happens if it all breaks down and you actually do end up getting bitten by the dog, then you want to get it cleaned and bandaged as soon as possible. If this is riding to a nearby house or a nearby hospital, your quickest option is your best here. This is really nothing outside of common sense advice, but if you're in a rabies-affected country, you want to get there even quicker by whatever means possible, you've got to get to a hospital. It's as simple as that, really. Question four, any recommendations for a bike travel bag? I'm moving over to London for six months and ideally would like to bring my Emoda SL6 with me. I'd also like to travel a little bit in 2017, maybe Tulsa Tough if I upgrade from Cat5, TMI, and would love recommendations for a case that I could put on an airline. Domestically, I typically fly southwest since I'm near a hub, but I don't have any allegiance. A few triathlon friends have the Rusta hen house, but I don't really have anything to compare it to at the moment. Any advice for flying with a bike greatly appreciated. First up, let me say traveling domestically in the USA sucks balls, often costing upwards of 150 bucks each way. There are exceptions to this, like Southwest Airlines and JetBlue, which are cheaper. Southwest is 75 bucks each way. Southwest Airlines is extra reasonable because they have a flat bike fee that covers oversized bikes up to 100 pounds. In Australia, as long as you're under the weight limit, there's no problem at all with carrying a bike. You can go in with a big bike box like the Evoc Travel Bag or the Bike End Helium, which are both great bags, by the way, and you're not going to have any issues. Your bike's going to be fully protected. It's going to be heavy. You throw all your junk in there and away you go. But otherwise, in the US, you're trying to play a game with the airlines. You're trying to subvert paying fees. It's going to take a little bit more work a little bit of stuffing around with your bike, a little bit more packing, and a little bit of ninja action at the check-in. 
So in this regard, in the US, the Ruster Henhouse is a pretty cool solution. It's two bags for 350 bucks USD, and they're decent. They get the bike down to a form where you're not going to be charged for the extra cost of carrying a bike. The bike has to be broken right down, though. So we are talking fork off the bike, which is a bit of a pain in the ass. But if you're saving 300 bucks, maybe that's going to be a benefit. Another fork off the bike bag that I recommend is the Oru Case Airport Ninja. It's a pretty sexy bag. It is super plain and unnoticeable. And if you talk nicely to the check-in person, then you may get away with not having to pay anything and just checking the bag normally, not even having to go to the special baggage load area. I track down the best advice when it comes to this from someone that travels a lot with a bike. And of course, it's DC Rainmaker. And his excellent advice goes like this. Choose a case that doesn't scream bike case or anything at all. It has no markings on it. So there's no way that someone can accuse you of carrying a bike. He says at the airline check-in counter, the world around, the first thing they do is scope out your luggage. If you have something that looks like a bike case, they immediately start to find the fee table for it. The other part is being a little tricky when they ask you what's in that big bag. He answers a pretty generic equipment, or if pressed, equipment while working. Or going even further, Jeremy Powers, the CX rider from the US, will say it's a trade show display. If they're told it's a bike, they must charge for it because that's their job. He has no moral qualms with this because he believes that riding a bike is displaying his trade or whatever he quoted in the article. If you feel uncomfortable with this approach, just consider saying bike parts or gear, all technically true. You can make your own lie up when it comes to being an airport ninja, something that you can live with. A couple of bonuses here is always check in online prior to arriving at the airport and just note how many bags you have as you normally would. Agents usually don't want to redo baggage fees if you've already done them online and you have to trust DC Rainmaker on this one. Also, approach the ticket counter with the bike case slightly behind you, out of view. It should be the last item you give them after they've printed out the bag tags. What a sneaky devil that DC Rainmaker is. Question five, how many rides a week do you do in the off-season? Season is ending a little early for me this year, thanks to some special work commitments. I'll start my off-season in about two weeks, and I'm putting together a plan. How many rides or how many miles do you put in a week over the off-season? For me, I've always worked under the heuristic that the older you are, the shorter the break off the bike. This is for a number of reasons, including a lifestyle and not totally detraining so you can get back up to speed quicker. But I've read a great study recently called Effects of Long-Term Training Cessation Cessation in Young Top-Level Road Cyclists that have somewhat changed my mind. It examined the effects of five weeks of no training in 10 young, around 20 years old male road cyclist. It looked at body composition, hematological and physiological parameters. After not training, the body mass of the cyclist increased, duh, VO2 max decreased, duh, hematological, hemoglobin and hematocrit values decreased in young top level road cyclists, suggesting the need for a shorter training stoppage, duh. Well, scientific articles point out the obvious, but they do it in a systematic way where they're checking that it's all right. And these are things, yes, we already knew. It is more now that we take this information and just 
apply it. If we are young or we're coaching young riders or even if we're older and thinking about a longer break, we need to have some type of maintenance program in there. Otherwise, you're just going to detrain really quickly and it's going to be harder to come back from where you were. I can get a little bit technical as far as what I look for with my CTL and ATL and where I want them to reduce to, but I don't see any point at this stage. I'm just going to give you some pointers as to how to build a break and then an off-season program after that so that you're not losing too much fitness in this break before you're ready to start again. So no long breaks. Physically, you can bounce back after a week off the bike. It's really the mental aspect that is the biggest concern here. And this feeds into how many workouts to do in your off-season. You really want to be totally recharged and ready to go all in when proper training rolls around. This can actually take four or five weeks to get that mental freshness back. But don't stop being active in this period. So what to do in the off-season? If you're 35 or 40, you need to maintain some riding. You need to keep that happening. Everyone else or everyone under that age can get away with other activities. So choose two. Choose two activities and stick with those because you want to have the progression. You want to be applying the overload principle in the off-season. Maybe it's not for aerobic fitness, but it's for strengthening or even for stability or mobility. You really want to work on a totally different plane. So activities that work other areas of your body are going to be the best options here. You want to add a mobility, stability exercises, and then you want to add aerobic exercises. So my best examples here are yoga and cross-country skiing work really well together. That's going to take up two or three days in your week. And then I'd add a couple of days on the bike as you're starting to get closer to your actual start of your proper training. Outside of that, I would even add maybe a hike or a walk or two so that you're doing something totally different, but you're still keeping your body active. The types of rides that you will start to do will really depend on where you are because if you are in the snow, you want to do less but harder, no snow, longer but slower. You don't really want to neglect the opposite intensity though. So if you are doing less but harder, try and figure out some way to do longer. If you're doing slower but longer, try and figure out to add some intensity. It's really that simple. And this will get you mentally and physically through that gap and then ready and hungry to start the training proper when it is base period one. Bam, end of the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And of course... Ride well.